things are pretty much in order. Kathy is, is our program chair now, as you know, from the last meeting, which I missed. And she will be interviewing our presenter this time, Gary Fine, who may hold this up? Certainly. Among other main things is the author of this book. If any of you have copies here that you want him to autograph, I'm sure he will oblige. By the way, the copy you have is the Harvard edition. Mine is the University of Illinois edition. This is Gary's copy, actually. I'm ashamed to say that I haven't, haven't bought it. Um, what yeah. year did you join the Minnesota Club? Oh, I, maybe that's later, but. I think it was 1984. Before my 20 years with this club, I was with the Minnesota Mycological Society, the first state to get a state mushroom. One guess what the mushroom was. <laughs> I read that in the book. I read that in the book. One of our members pushed that through the uh, legislature. Um, but um, I think Gary joined the club like a month or so before that. So. He was researching for this book when uh, a bunch of us were in the Minnesota Club. And I haven't read the book recently. I don't remember what my pseudonym is. The names were changed to protect the yeah. Yeah. Except there's one where it's Brian, the president. Yeah, well, there's well, But presidents. Brian was a, uh, a pseudonym. I know, but still, you can look up president and figure it out. Sort no, of. I wasn't president. Never mind, never mind. I wasn't president the whole time. Um, we've had two club forays so far that went well. We postponed the uh, KPT foray a week because the spring was late and we still were early. Um, we got some false morels and um, one member brought this uh, big red false morel from, from St. Louis area up to that foray and I kept it for my class and to show you guys tonight and to put it on the final for my class Friday. Um, it's a the biggest false morel, um, and false morels, um, Jaramitra, are toxic to some degree, but some people still eat them, um, but you have to uh, be sure you cook them properly to get rid of the toxin. Um, but it's a controversial topic for eating this. Which Jaramitra is This is Jaramitra carolineana, the big red. Um, Do all Jaramitras have hydrazine in them? Yeah. Okay, so, so that's all, a good reason not to have it. All have the toxin. <laughs> morels also have the toxin, but at much lower amounts. So you do want to, you have to cook morels. Occasionally people eat them raw and get sick uh, because they don't know they need to cook them. So you have to cook morels. Basically you have to cook, uh, we suggest you cook all wild mushrooms unless you're somebody like bread that uh, knows the few that you can eat raw safely. Um, the, uh, so we didn't find any true morels at Kiki, but we got uh, a couple people found morels last Saturday. The morels did just start this past week, and uh, the, there's there's a Facebook page, Illinois Morel Mushrooms, and they now have records of morels in every county for Illinois this year. So they're they're out there. We have the regular yellow morel and the half free morel on Saturday. And we had 26 or 28 species on Saturday, and about 40 some uh, pink key. And we've been using iNaturalist both times to put photos on there. So um, look at the newsletter or my website, Michael Guide. Click on Microflora, and 
get links there to look at iNaturalist to see photos of the mushrooms we found on the two forays. So we'll keep doing that on the forays. That's working pretty good. Um, last Saturday, we got a, a fairly rare polypore fungus. It's more common south, but this is the first time we found it in Chicago area. Um, Lorinda's holding up there on the stick. It doesn't look like much, but um, it's always exciting to get a new record for Chicago. So we'll get a, we get about six to ten new records each year with the forays. Everybody out looking. Nicole found this one. So um, it's food. It's the name just changed in March, which I didn't realize until somebody posted the, paper, the new paper on Facebook. So, um, but it's it was a Fusco Serena. Um, which means it looks like a Serena, but it's Fusco, which is a kind of grayish, smoky color. Um, and it's named after Puerto Rico, but it grows all the way up to North Dakota. Okie doke. So our presenter tonight, well, first of all, who's here like culinary historian Chicago Foodways Roundtable? Oh, excellent, excellent. I have the unenviable position this year of being program chair for Chicago Foodways Roundtable. I help Scott with culinary stories, for those that know, Highland Park Historical Society, and IMA, which is a lot for me. And so this, this is an opportunity to combine the uh, communities. <laughs> and so this program I am, is also a Chicago Culinary Historian, Chicago Foodways Roundtable meeting. We're now at, at this nest, but come September, unless things go away or wrong, um, there's going to be a program on in our nest, which you're welcome to come to, the mycological people. Um, and it's going to be, when I first joined like 30 some years ago, many of the people that I met were from Eastern Europe. And a lot of them were of that heritage. And it was, the frequent story was, my uncle knew how to do it, he's died, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm here to learn. That was frequently the path. You know, there's the science people, there's the picture people, and there's the pot people. But you know, the pot people help pay the bills, you know? So what the heck, we, we put up with everybody. And so, I'm, but some of that culture is changing, and I want to kind of get some of those old stories out, and that's going to be the September program. But tonight's program mm -hmm. is esteemed sociologist Gary Fine, who has been at Northwestern for what, the last 20 years? 21 years. 21 years. Um, he's done a number of papers. One of his specialties is on small groups small social things. So that would be the mushroom people. One of them was what, uh, the debate clubs in high school? Yes. <laughs> Dungeon and Dragons, Little League Baseball. Uh, I think another one was, yeah, I mean, you've also done what, bowling leagues? Uh, well, uh, competitive chess. Oh, competitive chess. And do you kind of like put yourself into these four situations every time, huh? That well, that's right. I, I, I can. I'll explain. Well, a he'll bit explain in, it. In but the one that touches us is when you investigated the communities and the rituals and the secrets. I've been reading his book. I didn't read completely the book. It's very content rich. 
reading. So you read the pages slowly because there's an awful lot of information. I was telling that to him earlier. It was like, I could have gone further if it had been a little lighter in the reading, but that's okay. I learned stuff. Is that, that's, that's the way it goes, right? So Gary's going to talk a little bit about his book, and then I'm going to ask some additional questions. And of course, we're all here together. You're welcome to ask questions. But one at a time, of course. All right. All right, Gary. Well, th thank you, Kathy. And, and please, if you can't hear me in the back, let me know when I'll eat. I'll, uh, maybe I'll stand up or I'll stand in the middle of the room, um, and you'll hear me somehow. And I really want to thank Kathy for this invitation, and I want to thank Kathy for being Kathy. <laughs> because, you know... Thank you. She is absolutely an uh, Illinois resource. You know, we have known each other for that was 20 close, years. close to 20 years yeah. now. Because he also touches the food world. Right. I, I have a book on uh, the restaurant industry. So, so, you know, Kathy is, as you all know, just remarkable. And we can never say that too often. Thank you very uh, much. So I want to talk a little bit about of uh, the kind of research that I do. Um, is I think we're okay, but you guys can okay. check whatever you want. Well, I'll, let, let, me, let me stand up and I'll, I'll sit down after a little bit. Um, as Kathy mentioned, I am a professor of sociology at Northwestern University. And um, I uh, have been a professor for a little over 40 years now, which is a long time to lecture and a long time to do research, but I've enjoyed that process. Now, every scholar has his or her own area of interest. And for me, what became fascinating was the way that small groups have a culture and the way that cultures commit people to their social lives. And they, that can be any number of cultures. So my first research project was a study of Little League Baseball. And I wanted to understand how these pre-adolescents, these 10-year-old, 12-year-old boys, uh, managed their team success and their team failure. How they, each team developed a culture of its own. And so I spent three years with these kids that published a book called With the Boys, Little League Baseball and Pre-Adolescent Culture. Um, and then I went on, I'm not gonna describe all my projects, but I studied uh, Dungeons and Dragons and restaurant kitchens and so forth. We, so let me, since this is a joint meeting, I wanna just mention that the third project was my study of restaurant kitchens in Minnesota. And why was I studying restaurant kitchens? Well, I had this interest in group culture, but I was also interested in the way that philosophers talk about aesthetics. And when I do a project, I am always looking for a place where people naturally talk about the topic that I'm interested in. So at that point, this was the early 1980s, I was reading a lot of philosophy about aesthetic theory. I won't go into all of that because it's, you know, if you're not a philosopher, it can be kind of dry. 
But I said, you know, I want to find a place in which people talk about the boundaries of aesthetics. And Restaurant Kitchens was that place, and that's where my book Kitchens came from. So I was doing that research, and one day this pretty upscale restaurant in the Twin Cities uh, got in a several box loads of morel mushrooms. Mm. And they were using it in, in some dishes. You know, now is a, a good time to go to restaurants if you'd like morels and, and mushroom dishes. Um, and I said to myself in the early, mid-80s, gee, I really don't know anything about mushrooms, but I am very, well, first thing I said was, where can I find them? Right, you all know that. And, you know, I talked in the, uh, my book about this disease that people get called moralitis. <laughs> right, so you, for those of you who don't know the joke, it's, you know, someone asks you where, where you pick these morels and suddenly you go deaf. Right, so that's, uh, so that's moralitis. Uh, and uh, after I was done with this research on restaurants, I, I became interested in how philosophers talk about the natural environment, talk about environmental ethics. Uh, and I asked myself, where can I find a setting, a group, in which people routinely talk about the, the environment and the boundaries of their activities in the environment. And remembering those morels and, and wanting to know where they came from and all, I decided that I would join the Minnesota Mycological Society where I got to meet Pat and, and a number of other people who, who were very important in my life. Uh, and what was interesting, one reason that I chose that site other than being interested in finding these edibles uh, was that in terms of the environmentalists, in terms of naturalists, in, uh, mushroomers are a little bit odd. Right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know that. You know that you're odd in many different ways. Uh, you know, actually, every group that I've studied uh, considers themselves to be really odd, whether it's Little League Baseball or, or restaurant cooks or, or mushroomers. Uh, they all believe that they're kind of, they have shared madness. Uh, but for the mushroomers in particular, what was interesting was that they violated the basic rules, well, rules of being in nature. That is, you know, uh, take only memories or take only photographs. That what we do, and I still pick mushrooms, uh, is, you know, we go out in the wild with our knives or pulling things from the ground. We probably shouldn't be doing that quite. Uh, and that is in some ways uh, anathema to what a pure environmentalist would do. Now, I am well aware of the arguments that are made for the legitimacy of mushrooming and, and, and so forth, so I don't want to get into that politics right now, I'm happy to answer questions about it. But it was interesting for me to see how these Minnesota mushroomers justified their activity. 
And when you go into another world, a world that you never knew before, uh, that you had no experience with, you always get surprised. So I remember the first meeting of the Minnesota Mycological Society that I attended. And I have to say, you know, I'm probably some of you can appreciate this, I was a little nervous. I mean, I was nervous because I didn't know these folks, but I was also nervous because mushrooms can kill me. <laughs> I didn't know which ones would and which ones wouldn't. So I went to the meeting, and before the meeting started, there were a couple of people standing around joking with each other about uh, a, a, another member who hadn't shown up for a couple of meetings. <laughs> all right? So you, you all know, I don't have to check. I'm, maybe I should make this talk because you all know what I'm going to say. Uh, but uh, they, uh, you know, one of they were talking about where he was, and uh, someone said, well, maybe his wife fed him some bad mushrooms, <laughs> right? And, and I said, wow, I would be, you know, I, I'd be so nervous about that. I, I take it seriously, not as a form of joking, but that revealed to me that there were things that were in that culture, those norms, those beliefs that people had, that bound them together, but they knew that they were just kidding. And to me, as a sociologist, that was very striking, that they were, uh, there was a group culture that was very powerful. So I, I think I, it was four years that I was uh, actively studying the Minnesota Mycological Society, and um, it, was, uh, it was a very happy, revealing four years for me. Um, I hope that when the book came out, it was happy and revealing for all of the members. I think for some of them, some of them maybe yes, some of them maybe question mark. Uh, and what I was trying to do in the book is to make an argument that nature is fundamentally cultural. That is, this division that we would have between nature on the one side and culture, on the other, is a false distinction. And so in this book, there are six major chapters. And the chapters are divided into three sets of two. The first two chapters deals with the way that mushrooms themselves are cultural. That is, we, at least back in the 1980s, would speak about some mushrooms using the female pronoun and other mushrooms using the male pronoun. We would, so that the, uh, uh, the white mushrooms and the smaller mushrooms, would, we'd say, people in the club would say she, and the bolites would be he mushrooms. Um, and that some mushrooms were considered beautiful and some mushrooms were considered ugly uh, some were, you know, little, uh, little brown mushrooms, LBMs, uh, and so there was a lot of transformation of these natural items into cultural phenomena. So that was the first part of the book. Um, the second part was to make the argument that mushrooms, when they don't go into the woods as isolated individuals, 
You may go alone, but you come back not only with mushrooms, but with stories. And you tell those stories to those other people who care about your activity. And so it is very social in that sense, and it is social in the sense that very often we have forays together. And we get as much pleasure from the forays as from eating the mushrooms. Um, and, and another part of this is the joking about mushrooms. Uh, Pat, I perhaps remember the, uh, at, at the Minnesota Club, there were the, uh, let's call them the conservative mushroomers and liberal mushroomers. <laughs> Uh, not, not in political terms, but, uh, you know, so, so I remember on one occasion uh, someone used a, uh, their knife, their, their mushroom knife, to cut uh, a, an amanita from the ground. And even though they, they wiped it, someone else, one of the more conservative papers said, now you can't use that knife again because it might have these, these spores on it. Um, and so there was a real difference. There were some people in the club who would try almost, almost anything. They just, they, they, and they would say, you know, okay, a little diarrhea is worth the experience. <laughs> um, and there were others who would say, you know, if, you know, if I put uh, an amanita in, in a bag with another mushroom, then, you know, I'd never eat the other mushroom, even if I washed it. Um, and then there were jokes that were told about both groups. Each group joked about the other. <laughs> they, were, they were crazy for their particular beliefs. And then the, the last two chapters was, were uh, focused on the institutions. The fifth chapter about the Minnesota Club as an institution which gathered people together with common interests in the way that leisure organizations are formed. And then the sixth chapter is about the relationship of the amateur collectors and the mycologists, the, the scientists, and the way in which the amateurs gave the professional mycologists uh, a lot of status, even though in the realm of big science, Mycology is not rated as highly as high energy physics, for example. But you know, if you have a, if you're a professor of mycology at University of Illinois, uh, and you come up here, everyone gathers around you, you know, more so than they would for a sociologist, say, and say, oh, you're you're a very you're a special person. You you matter to us, um, and so that basically provides you with the the structure of the book. Uh, I'm still a mushroomer. I go to uh, North Carolina, Western North Carolina, uh, every summer, and I get a chance to uh, pick uh, chicken of the woods and chanterelles a lot. But I'm not going to tell you where other than Western North Carolina I go during the summer. In fact, that was one of the things you brought up in your book, is that in this culture, Secrecy is not a deal breaker. Everybody understands that. Once you are part of this world, this mushrooming world, you understand what the norms are, what the rules are 
for sharing information. And if you really like someone and you want to involve them, one of the greatest gifts you can give them is one of your mushroom spots. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is a you know kind of a material gift, and and we've all had that experience. Probably most people have had that experience in which, when someone wants to get you involved in the activity, they will tell you you know not their best morale spot, but maybe their third or fourth best. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's part of building a community, and, and if you push too hard, I have an example in the book of, of this uh, new member, elderly member, who was really pushing other members very hard, where did you find that Burrell, where did you find that, and, you know, people were saying, well, it was out there, it was out, you know, west of this suburb, or, you know, not giving him very much information, he didn't understand what the rules of sharing information and secrecy were. What happened? Did they blow up? Uh, they, no, it didn't. I mean, you know, at a certain point, you are not fully accepted, and you know, you're not getting a lot of pleasure from that activity, and so you you disappear. And we did have a member here years ago, Norm Ronicki. Probably, I'm one of the few that remembers him. Sorry, but he was like our Pied Piper of morels. And he would find a lot of them. And when you would ask him, where did you get the morels? Oh, he had a swift answer. He would pull out a little picture, and it was the edge of a forest. <laughs> that was the answer. But he did give me a few ideas of, I happen to live in Highland Park. We have ravines. And he said, I would look at those ravines, especially if they have a western exposure, they get a little more sun. He says, I would look at the railroad embankments. And we used to publish, maybe now that we've, we're, we're doing this project of um, scanning all of our old newsletters, in some of our old newsletters, there was a period of time where every year we would put the, the long anecdotal list of where you could find morels. Mm -hmm. It didn't tell you exactly where, but what were the conditions. Right. And in fact, in your book, you talked about people who said they could smell, smell the mushrooms. Yes, that, that's right. Well, uh, first of all, when you know, that another standard answer is where, where do you find those morels outside? <laughs> that's, oh, that's pretty good. Uh, and uh, you know, at, at least in Minnesota, and, and I think here, because I was a member of this club for, for a number of years uh, when I first came to Illinois, uh, you know, there would, people would look for particular kinds of cues. You know, if uh, an apple orchard, an old apple orchard, or elm trees dying or you know any number of things some of them entirely contradictory with with other claims of where you might find them yeah that's that's true and in fact my next door neighbor this was about 10 15 years ago several months after the morel season said oh by the way i found a morel next to my garage because I didn't tell you because you'd come over and pick it. No, I would not have. I would not have, but after she moved, I did kind of walk over there. <laughs> I'm not foolish, you know. Uh, I listened carefully and then waited for the right moment. Uh, but when you were talking about people who kind of play it to the edge, there was this one guy who wanted, you know, there's the, there's the Capritus, the one where you could drink alcohol and get very uh, ill? Yes, yes. You want me to tell the story? And, oh. he, and this was the one where he wanted to try it out. He was going to like, 
take the mushroom, have some alcohol, and then see what happens. Until somebody pointed out, well, you know, you are a heart patient. <laughs> and a racing heart might not be a good idea yes. for you. Right. Right. And, and each of us has to make the decision as to, you know, we want to try, we want to have experiences. And, you know, you're here, I'm here because you love mushrooms, you love the idea of picking them and maybe photographing them and for many people eating them. Uh, and, you know, some people will stick to the, uh, uh, the foolproof four and other people will try and have a list as long as possible. There is, there was, I, I mentioned in the book, a, uh, a mushroomer in, uh, I think, Los Angeles who you know, made it a point to try and taste as many mushrooms, even poisonous mushrooms, as he could. He wouldn't necessarily swallow them, but he would have the taste of them, and uh, you know, even a, a small amount. And you know, some people thought that he was absolutely crazy, yeah. and other people thought that, you know, that he was doing what a, a scientist does. Um, and I can tell you now in 2018, I have no idea if he's still with us or not, but I, but I sure hope that he is. And then there was that guy in your book who was gung-ho on having Ammonitas kind of refreshed and have a better reputation, because only right. a few are poisonous. Yeah, that's right. I mean, some Ammonitas or Ammonitas uh, are, you know, are prime edibles, but you have to, you know, how sure do you have to be in order to try them? And interestingly enough, how sure do you have to be of your fellow members of the club to try them? So, uh, you know, in the Minnesota club, and, and I think here in Illinois at least at, at some point, you know, people would bring in mushroom dishes. And, you know, if you wouldn't eat them, it would be like saying, I don't trust this other person, but you, you know, you have to make that decision. I mean, I went on uh, forays, and I know Kathy is, you're, you're part of the, uh, uh, the, the group that cooks mushrooms at the Nama uh, we, we, and Let me tell you, uh, Stephanie and I, we go and buy cultivated mushrooms, because we do not want the problems. Oh. I mean, if somebody else brings them to us, and sort of at the Nama foray, yes. I mean, I never, there were huge boxes of these black chanterelles, you know, the black trumpets. I had never seen that many, but they did have them certified, and they were, okay, so we use that. But in general, we do public programs. Generally, Mitsuo, I'm sorry, or H-Mart is our home for really okay. wild mushrooms, because we really don't want the problems. Right, but it relates to the idea of trust. Yes. That, you know, we each have to make decisions on whether we will trust another person. And it doesn't only, obviously, mushrooms are just one example. You know, are you willing to have someone else drive you somewhere? That's a matter of trust. Are you willing to have sexual relations with this other person? That's a matter of trust. Throughout our social life, we are making decisions of judgments of people, often people that we don't know very well. Is this person worthy of my being, you know, uh, a risky behavior, 
of a particular kind. In fact, we had a program here uh, a few years ago where that person talked about, well, you know, there were these two mushrooms, and I was about 50% sure that it was okay, and went ahead and endorsed eating it. We're talking 50%. I like higher numbers, like 99%. I probably fall into the conservative category, you know me. Uh, but, but there was a flurry of emails in the background after that meeting about how to relate that this woman was a little, you know, a right. little and, crazy. And what should idea. be the boundary of the club in that regard? Because in some, if you have a speaker who is giving information that could be dangerous, is that the responsibility of the club? Was that the woman who said that purges are good for the soul? Yeah, I think that she was Ireland. Yes. Oh, you got her. Oh my God, yes. But she was the American hippie that everybody in that area knew. Yeah, and uh, it was really odd, you know, because I have found with mushrooms, okay, like me, I have an allergy to sulfur drugs, I can't eat chicken or the woods, you know, for example, that you have to actually know your particular situation. Right. And you can't, uh, you know, I remember her, and occasionally I run into other people saying, why not take a chance? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. I mean, it's like the, 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 with, with Pat talking about the gyrometra, you know, the thing with the gyrometra is, yeah, you can eat it, but it doesn't leave your system. And then after a while, it reaches a certain level, and now you start to have things like kidney and liver problems. But it tastes like bacon! Oh. <laughs> so it's worth the risk to you. And in fact, situations also where it's like they have it in soup that tastes. So why bother cooking it three times, spending three hours? You can go to the grocery Everything, make a four-course meal in three hours. That, that's a very good. That's a very good point. Uh, one of the things that surprised me, and in doing these kind of projects, I'm always looking for things that surprise me as someone who is naive, and I'd like to be naive in those scenes. And so I had imagined that after doing my research on restaurant uh, restaurants, that mushroomers would, you know, they gather the mushrooms, and then they'd make gourmet dishes. Um, it turned out that that was very rare. What they would do is you know, get, pick the mushrooms and then uh, saute them with butter, a little salt. That was it. And so it was, it was a different culture. Even though in the restaurant culture, morels were you know, used in... in five-star restaurants and so forth. Sometimes yeah. raw. <laughs> raw? Uh, well, because they don't know. Uh, well, those are, they will probably get fewer stars after <laughs> <laughs> Or at least fewer diners after the stars. And actually, it's one of the things that, but you, yeah, I remember that, but that's actually one of the things that's a kind of like annoying to all of us in this room is to go to a restaurant, be told you're getting wild mushrooms, and you recognize, well, let's see, you can pick that one up at H Mart, you can pick that one up at Costco, and there's really not much that we'd call wild. Right, right. I mean, shiitake is considered by many restaurants to be a wild mushroom. 
it's you know maybe a, a wild and crazy mushroom, but not a uh, one that you find in the woods. All right, all right, you make it. Okay, now you also had comments about the way. Now this is pre-DNA because DNA, the ability has really shaken up the the ability to name mushrooms. Right. Uh, which is great because things are maybe this is the final round. Do you think, Pat, for naming mushrooms? <laughs> The final 100-year round. <laughs> but you had comments about the way mushrooms right. were named. Right. I mean, finally, we're at the end of science. We, we've got, we've got to have it's, uh, Well, we have, I should say, so the one debate right now is whether to allow naming new species based on a DNA sequence from environmental samples like soil samples because there's lots of fungi and bacteria and other things turning up in soil samples where they can do a broad DNA sequencing batch of things and get a whole lot of sequences that don't match up with anything known. So one debate is, can we put species names on these things without a specimen? Or we don't have any clue. We know what it's related to, but we have no clue about life cycle or what it looks like or anything. So that's a debate right now. But I remember you, he talked about like, the limited vocabulary we have to express what they look like, the limited vocabulary we have to what they taste like, and how they smell. Yes. And if you don't have this other, if you don't know what they're talking about, you don't know what's going on. Well, it's the question, you know, how do we judge what a species is? And what is the limit of species? When I was doing this book, and, and maybe it's still true today, um, Every five years, there would, there's a congress, an international congress on mushroom nomenclature. And what I was told back then is that it would uh, move from the United States to Europe. And the Americans and the Europeans had different views about speciation. That the Europeans, if I remember, liked to split species and the Americans would lump them together and so you know one at one of these conferences they would split apart morels into uh, you know 50 different species and then they would go to the other location and they would put those 50 species back into seven or ten species uh, and it's you know it it's not God's truth it's our truth it's, you know, how many species, how much of a distinction constitutes another species. And, you know, sociologists study race a lot. And it's a similar kind of issue. What constitutes a race? The Irish used to be a race. We would talk about the Celtic race or the Jewish race. Today, that to say that the Irish are a different race from Caucasians doesn't make any sense. Uh, and that is, these are changes that occur over time. Uh, and, you know, where do you draw the line between ethnicity, which is cultural, and race, which is at least supposedly biological? But of course, you know, those of you who've done 23 and me and, or, Ancestry.com, you know, know that you get back something that says, oh, you're you're 26 percent Honduran and 14 percent Croatian, and uh, 
you know, 3% uh, Australian and, and, and so forth. Well, what does that mean? And what does it mean in terms of making these supposedly scientific decisions as to what constitutes a species? Um, and do we use electron microscopes? Do we use visual cues? Do we use uh, whether the, the mushrooms can uh, uh, co uh, be... Mate. Hmm? Mate. Can mate, yes. I'm thinking what, what the mycological term would be, maybe it's mate. Um, you know, and those are decisions that scientists argue about and that they have impact in some regards for you in terms of the relationship of the common names and the scientific names. So I remember, gosh, what, what, uh, dentinum used to be... Hiddenum. Hid, hid, hiddenum. Okay. Or is Hiddenum the current name or is it the... Um, Hiddenum is the current name now, but it's okay. switched. Oh, so okay. suddenly, mm -hmm. goodbye, is it dentinum? Yeah. Uh, you know, that species is now gone. Doesn't that exist. Genus or the genus. But you also talked about the common names, which actually, I, you said the mushroomers tend to use the Latin names but people outside of the mushroom world tend to use the common names. Do you remember what I mean? Right. Well, it, you know, and different species, you know, we, we make different choices about. So we'd talk about agaricus, uh, and then we wouldn't talk about the field mushrooms, or uh, what, what would be another example? Rusula. Right. No, well, rusulas or, or bammers. You know where you throw it against the tree, and you know that, that was an example I used for uh, the way in which some mushroomers, at least on some occasions, are you know do things that pure environmentalists would roll their eyes at, if not worse. Uh, now they're jars; they're called jars in California. Really? Oh, just another rustler. Uh, oh yes, yes. Right. yes. That was that phrase was in this book. Just not with the shortcut. Mm -hmm. Now there was this. If you don't mind, I'm gonna. It was somebody sure. from I think the Minnesota Club, who wrote something in the uh, influenced by Karl Marx style, talking oh, about. Oh right, right, right. It probably was Lee Lee Mugley. I bet. Do you want to read this or shall I read? You, you go. Well, okay. Oh God, or I can read. You know what? Get like. it because it's your. All right. Which? It's it, where the pink. Pink oh. thingy is. Okay. So uh, this was one of our, our buddies. Uh, one of the pillars of our Minnesota club who passed away. Yes, if, if it was in fact Lee. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. But it was one of the, the folks there. Uh, it says, Karl Marx wrote, The plains of Hindustan are strewn with the bleached bones of the weavers of Bengal. And so it is with our poor, downtrodden Rushalas. <laughs> Just listen to how so-called, quote, mushroom lovers malign this proletariat genus. <laughs> Casting their broken bodies aside, we mutter phrases like garbage mushrooms with disgust. It almost sounds like untouchable or outcast, going back to Bengal. 
Are not rujulas truly abundant even in drier months when the petty bourgeois genera are, uh, are safely underground? Are they not toiling in mycorrhizal labors while capitalist genera such as honey caps and sulfur shelves sponge off our forests? <laughs> and are they not more colorful than the aristocratic morshellas of spring? Yes, yes, and yes. Perhaps their inscrutability their resistance to macroscopic identification are what give rise to such unprovoked antagonism. So my point in doing that was to suggest that mushrooms, natural objects, are, can be given this very rich cultural meaning cultural meaning that we all, as mushroomers, understand. Did I, I sir, question, uh, yes? Well, I wondered, and it, it may be that your focus on mushroomers was fairly limited to culinary and uh, interest, but I wondered if you encountered mushroomers who were interested in the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and I have seen Paul Stanis and other Right. Do you have any reflections on that branch of mycelium? Well, Minnesota did not have a, a very large uh, collection of psychoactive mushrooms, um, unlike California, say. And there, there wasn't really a large amount of discussion in, in my observations of, about medicinal properties. That's more of a recent... More of recent interest than 30 years ago, yeah. Right, so, uh, yeah, I'm certainly, you know, you could do this study and look at those mushroomers who were very, are very interested in, in psychoactive the, mushrooms. No, I, I, know, I know, I know that's not just what you're saying, but in terms of, you know, that, that there certainly is that very active part of the mushrooming community that looks for cow poop and you know you're likely to find the uh, uh, psilocybin and, and the rest. Yeah, I see a... Uh, yes. I was, was going to ask uh, where that boat was from. Uh, well, I have a footnote so we could... Uh, where in terms of what what publication or? Yeah. Um, was that? Oh, I can find it here. I'll yes. find why, it. Why put it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was that something put in the newsletter, or where did? Where did uh, that, well, we'll we'll find it in a minute. Okay. I I wouldn't be surprised if it was in the newsletter, and and we probably have the actual name. It may be Pat Laycock. Oh, okay. So uh, there, and then I'm you have the footnote. So he's okay. got like about twenty pages of footnotes. Okay, so this is forty-seven. Um, Okay. So, let's see. And there's some books now. They will not publish the footnotes. You have to go to a website. When uh, Gary was in our club in Minnesota, he was a bit of a suspicious character. <laughs> he would uh, follow our, us around with this little notebook. One eye 
writing notes and one eye on us <laughs> and listening to every word and we had no clue what he was going to produce out of that. This is the problem that ethnographers face and it's a problem of trust. So if I'm studying a group, you know, they, as Pat said, they don't know what I'm going to say, what embarrassing thing I'm going to talk about. You know, I try to be very generous, you know, not to be hostile, but there's certainly embarrassing things, uh, you know, that, that I cover here. And so just to, uh, it, it, um, the author is Jeff Donahue. Oh, Jeff. Uh, who, uh, the, and the article was in the uh, Toadstool Review, which was the newsletter. Uh, eat Rushalas in 86, 1986. Oh, okay. So, so that's, Jeff, um, Jeff just retired and moved back to the, I think, Illinois. So he, he might show up at a oh. meeting. He's not here tonight, is he? <laughs> He sent me an email uh, last month saying he was gonna um, he was reconnecting with mushroom people uh, um, since he's now retired. Oh, had had he left the? He uh, yeah. Uh, let's say yes. What is the what is the health of this You know, my research was 30 years ago, um, so I'm not sure the you know the size of the activity. Kathy, do you? Or I mean, this group has grown. I mean, we used to be roughly like about a hundred members, and we're what several hundred now? Two hundred. Two hundred. Well over two hundred. Yeah. Okay. And, and it's so and, 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 and when I when I first walked into this culture, as you want to call it that, uh, I was the youngest by far in the room. And I was like 25, 26 at the time, so the youngest. And everybody else was at least, they were, you know, they were all people that could be my parents. And I still showed up. Because that's kind of intimidating, you know, to hang out yeah. with your parents. I see them all the time. Ah. And I voluntarily show up for another one. Well, the Minnesota, the Minnesota Club, at the time that I was studying them, there was this interesting uh, uh, demography, we would call it, of the club, that many of the younger members were male, Pat, myself, uh, many others who were particularly active who came in through environmentalism in the uh, early 80s, mid 80s. And then there were a group of older members, often women, often from Eastern European backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And I, I talk in here, this may be a little embarrassing, you know, about some of the joking that went on between the, uh, the older women, the younger men, the, uh, you know, looking for uh, phallus impudicus, and uh, so it's, it's, it's all there, very dirty book. <laughs> no, I, well, I, I, I can't mention who it was, who it wasn't, but, uh, uh, oh, that um, reminds me, next month we have, <laughs> um, 
might as well announce this now. Next month we have uh, Michael Quo coming up to talk about stinkhorns. <laughs> all right. Save all your questions about those kind of mushrooms for next month. He'll be leading a foray. Yeah. He'll be leading a foray before. On the, the Sunday to before, he'll, we'll have a foray. Yes. You have a case study for the Minnesota Club. In your research, did you look or make contact with other groups? Yes. Are there other sorts of inputs? That, that right. Well, I went to a number of the national and regional forays, um, and I, I got to meet a, a longtime member of this club, uh, Liz Fa Farwell. Farwell. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I'm not sure when she stopped being active in, in the club. But Quite a while ago. She's still around, but no. she's in or she lives out in the west area. Okay. Like is it in Oregon or something like that? Yes, or Illinois. She or was kinda like Lorinda. Back there, Lorinda. because um, she was very actively engaged in the club. She was helping out at the Field Museum. She did our newsletter. She did our newsletter when I first joined this organization there was like six hundred dollars in the club kitty and Liz Farwell had not submitted a bill for her newsletter for a number of years and there was a worry that when she finally did it would wipe out whatever money we had. Uh, she was very actively engaged yeah. and then life she, she, she was ill and a number of things happened. Well it's one thing that often happens in leisure activity that people drift in and out of that activity. So, you know, I was a member of this club for a number of years, you know, five years maybe, and, you know, at a certain point I drifted into, you know, LTH maybe, or, you know, uh, the food, food group. Uh, and, you know, we, we often tend to do that. We have a, you know, a leisure career that for a period of time we're very active in one kind of activity, and then we move on to something else. Yep. By the way, I have, if you want, the Thoreau describing mushrooms. Oh, Thoreau? All right. Yes, I think it's, and it's very well written. Uh, right, I, I, I can't claim this writing myself. Uh, so, uh, okay, Henry David Thoreau. Uh, as I was going up the hill, I was surprised to see rising above the June grass near a walnut, a whitish object like a stone with a white top, or a skunk erect, for it was black below. It was an enormous toadstool, or fungus, a sharply conical parasol in the form of a sugar loaf, slightly turned up at the edges, which were rent half an inch for every inch or two. It was so delicate and fragile that its whole cap trembled at the least touch. And as I could not lay it down without injuring it, I was obliged to carry it home all the way in my hand erect while I padded, paddled my boat with one hand. It was a wonder how its soft cone ever broke through the earth. And there is something that's very nice about that quotation because it captures a little bit of the magic of mushroom. That, you know, what I suspect all of us, many of us, have wondered about how these delicate objects can break through the ground. You know, the ground seems very packed, and yet after a rain, 
A few days later, you will see mushrooms all over in their brightly colored array. Um, and it, it really is, it reminds us of the beauty, the majesty, the religiosity of nature. In fact, you even referred to, uh, there's one more quote. I, you know, I just saw stuff that was like, you know, that's kind of interesting. But it was also the, here it was. Okay, this is related to um, the reverence of the, of, the, of the display of samples at a foray. Oh, oh okay, so, oh. Oh dear, there's a lot of uh, scientific uh, uh, names here, uh, but uh, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm not sure where this quotation comes from. Oh, oh okay. Do, do you want to? You, you want me? Oh, wait, let this get Pat a shot. That's his area. Yes, absolutely. The quote here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This one. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's. <laughs> this, this is referring to the sacred quality of nature, apparently. The mushrooms are placed on paper plates and brought before the presiding mycologists who accept the offerings <laughs> and perform the identification rites at tables that sometimes resemble altars and at other times checkout counters. <laughs> the faithful line up and the chanting begins. <laughs> Russell Abrevipes, Pseudocolus Schellenbergii, Agrophorus Ebernius, Bride of Minicolor, Ad Astra per Aspra Todeum. The laying on of names is an old and complex ritual uttered in Latin and administered by those who descend from an ancient apostolic, apostolic tradition. Cool. And you are one of our people. Yes. <laughs> and, and there is something about that relationship between the amateur and the professional sure. that gives it power, that the professional has the power. <laughs> I, I was going to say the power like God to uh, name the creatures of the earth. So, uh, Descended from Adam. That's right. Uh, so it was my intention to take this corner of the world, this odd shard of activity, and to demonstrate that it truly has important social meanings, and that it's that social meanings. In, are embedded in the mushrooms, it, they're embedded in the clubs, and they're embedded in the social relations that we have with each other. And that was my goal in doing this. And in the process, I became the only sociologist of fungus around. <laughs> so, uh, and do you have many envious colleagues? <laughs> well, you know, I, when I was doing this research, I uh, was uh, in Minnesota. I was picking mushrooms, uh, morels, actually, 
and I had some colleagues over for dinner, for a little dinner party we had, and so we cooked them, and and there was some, it was some uh, trepidation, the you know as I was saying before, because I, I'm their colleague, and you know if they don't trust me, what does that say? And yet there are these mushrooms that you know they know that mushrooms can be fatal. Uh, and I will say most of our guests did at least try those mushrooms and all of them survived. That <laughs> so Gary, when you were growing up, what did you think you were going to do? Oh, what it, Oh, what did I think I was going to do? Because uh, I don't think this was what was at the list. I just might feel oh, like well, no, I actually, you know, I'm one of these, uh, you know, I, I talk in the book about, uh, you know, toddler mycologists, you know, kids who, who become fascinated with mushrooms. I wasn't a toddler mycologist, but I was a toddler sociologist, or I was maybe not a toddler, but, but I remember being, growing up in New York City, in Manhattan, and being really fascinated by the different types of people in the city and how they, you know, we, we live, as I say, in Manhattan and, you know, there are people all over and I wondered where they were coming from, where they were going. You know, this would have been probably when I was in uh, sixth grade or junior high school. And, you know, that interest, that fascination has never left me. And that's why, you know, I'm, uh, you know, after I did the um, uh, the morale challenge, I did a study of high school debate. I did a study of art collectors. Uh, I studied government meteorologists. Uh, oh, you know. yeah. Right, yeah. Okay, I mean, they're just as crazy as you are. And, uh, you know, I could tell you stories about, you know, it, uh, Give us one good story. Do they know what they're doing? <laughs> they, as much as I do, as much as you do. Oh. Uh, you know, as much as... Uh, I mean, they, there are... You know, uh, forecasters are generally right, generally, within three days. You know, if they, they give you a 10-day forecast. I wouldn't bet anything on, on you know, day eight or, you know... Uh, but that's they're required to do that, and there are are models for determining. Um, and there's there's a joking culture. So at the Chicago office, the, uh, the forecasters would often joke about being scientists, and they would because most of them had BA degrees or only associate degrees. They're not PhDs. They're not MAs or at least when I was doing the research. They are people who were, you know, trained in college to do meteorology, and then there are ways of doing it, and then they're, you know, they're, they're pretty decent, trustworthy people. Uh, but on the other hand, they worry, you know, they wanted to be seen as scientists. Can you be a, quote, scientist if you only have an associate's degree? So they would go home, they would go to one or another's home and perform 
experiments. Experiments that they called mad scientist experiments. So they would put things, one of the forecasters had a microwave oven, and so they, they would put things in the oven, like, you know, metal, and, you know, see whether they would explode, and, and, and that validated them, at least in a humorous way, as to being scientists. Um, and so there was, you know, as I say, a whole joking culture about, you know, about doing that. Um, and, and so I was studying meteorologists, and then, uh, as I mentioned, I studied competitive chess for five years. And then uh, I have a book coming out in August on uh, art students who are getting their MFA degrees. Um, and so, and the question there is, why is it that artists, young artists, are not taught how to paint in graduate school? They're not taught how to draw either. Well, that's, that's right, or sculpt. Yep. They're not taught technique. What are they taught? They're taught theory. They read French theory. They read Michel Foucault. They read, um, and, and they think about their identity. Art no longer speaks for itself. So if you ever heard that art speaks for itself, you're not in the art world. Uh, that you have to speak for your own intentions. Um, and then most recently, and maybe this is an indication of how I am growing up, I have been studying senior citizen political activists here in Chicago. And so I am in, so, you know, most people who do the kind of research that I do, the observational research, are young people. And it means you, we have a lot of studies of young people's social movements, but this is really the first uh, study of a a senior activist organization. Um, so, you know, I so I keep on doing these these projects, uh, you know, year after year. Until you go to the great sociology conference in the sky. <laughs> well, I right, and hopefully they will have uh, uh, PCs there, and so I can, you know, write, uh, you know, how, how you're able to survive the heat that is where I'm going to be going. <laughs> where you get the ice necessary for... Uh... Um, you mentioned, I forgot what the reference was, something about naive people, study naive people. I was going to suggest Facebook if you haven't been on there yet. <laughs> right, well, I, I try to be on there as infrequently as I can. Uh, it, it is a very interesting issue for sociologists in how social media differs from face-to-face -face interaction. You know, what, what do we gain through the extended networks of Facebook or Twitter, and what do we lose by not having the full range of information that we get by sitting next to each other? Uh, as I mentioned, I, I studied Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, in its early years in the 1970s, where people would sit around a table as opposed to sitting in a darkened room in their pajamas and on a computer. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a different kind of social world, similar in some ways, but 
different in terms of the kind of relationships that can develop when you're face to face. But, but, but okay, so in this respect, because where I know Gary quite a bit from is from LTH Forum, which is a website on food and other topics, well, food topics. Um, no, no food topics. I'll just leave it at that. And so we've had a number of dinners together, and a lot of the people on that website have had dinners together. And there can have been volatile moments, because, you know, the thing that's easy to do when you're in your pajamas on your computer is say about the nastiest thing you can think of. Yes. And you don't have to see the reaction of that person's face or the fury. Um, and fortunately, a lot of that has not been as prevalent on that particular website. It happens, but not like the force you see at other venues. And largely, we think, because there's quite the opportunity, you're going to end up meeting that person. Mm -hmm. And they're going to not forget that you insulted them. Yeah. Right. And, and it's, you know, that kind of social relations, that face-to-face -face relations, helps society by creating a culture of respect. You know, so as Kathy says, if you are going to be interacting with that person on a long-term basis, you know, you may want to use whatever colorful language uh, you, you would choose to do, but you know that there is a cost involved. And if you are simply an avatar, if you simply have a screen name and you're never going to meet that person again, then you're more likely to, to engage in kind of Twitter wars and, and so forth. That's where the good moderators come through and clean it up. I'm a moderator for that group. Right. And, and <laughs> at LTH, I'm not sure whether this is Kathy's term or not, but it's one of my favorite terms for online discussion groups, is moderation in, in moderation. moderation. Yes. And so that you don't want to come down too hard. You want to make the right judgments. That uh, and, and sometimes it comes down to somebody can make an ass of themselves. I'm not going to moderate that. But if they're going to attack another person, we're going to deal with that. Well, they, right. the exclusion is not a, you, you know, you don't become formally excommunicated. Right. What you what happens is, you know, people stop talking to you. Um, they don't. You know, they may not call you for, you know, informal things. Um, you suddenly feel less welcome than, you know, you had, and then, you know, you're not getting the same amount of pleasure. So social control can be organized formally through these rules. You know, you can. I mean, the LTH has, on occasion, uh, disallowed some people from participating on the board. It doesn't happen very often, but it has happened. Uh, and, you know, it could be the case that, you know, some people could be suggested this may not be the right place for you. But more often that it's, it's an informal kind of thing. And people have a strong desire to get along with each other. So that's kind of a last minute, a, a, a last possibility. Did, did I see a hand? I, I can say as, you know, since we have somewhat the same background that, uh, you know, that you know, who are those kind of people who, who are jerks? You know, well, some people will say they're New Yorkers. 
but but it's 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 more complicated than that because New Yorkers you know have this this thorny exterior this this certain roughness that people in Minnesota would find odd you know Minnesota nice as it's sometimes called. Well, that's that's part you know what people who study regions say is characteristic of, of the Midwest. Now, I don't think regions matter quite as much anymore because of mobility, but you know, it, it it's probably still does to some extent. So Gary, do you have a last word? Something you want to convey? Um, okay, yes. Uh, well, I want to convey, I hope I've conveyed my love of sociology, my love of understanding how people interact with each other, why culture matters, how cultures create commitment. And at the same time, I want to convey my great respect, my enjoyment, even my love for mycology. And I had so much pleasure doing this research. And, and in some ways, this may be my, my favorite book. I mean, it's like asking, which book is your favorite? Which child is your favorite? But I, I had such a great time writing this and remembering all those days, those afternoons in the field, all the joking that was done. Uh, you know, I, I talk in here about this, uh, this, the prank that we played on, uh, I, I now no longer remember what their actual names were, but two of the older women who were routinely the, uh, the, the ones who would identify mushrooms. And uh, two of the club members took a uh, clotoscopy, this big, white, meaty mushroom, and they had uh, food coloring, purple food coloring, and they painted this mushroom purple. And they had one of the, they, if, if they brought it in, it would be a little suspicious. So they had, you know, a, a new member bring it to the table. And uh, these two wonderful women spent about a half an hour trying to figure out what this mushroom could be. It didn't fit, it didn't quite fit any of the categories. Yeah, it looked like a clotosomy, but it was purple, so it couldn't be that. Or maybe it was a cornarius there, sometimes purple, but it didn't, it wasn't that. And uh, finally, one of the, the people, one of the pranksters said, gee, that mushroom looks funny. And suddenly they, the clouds lifted. They realized that they were the targets of this joke. And rather than being offended by it, they, it was a mark of how much fun the club was having at forays. And the club decided to hold the foray at the same location, Camp Sally, uh -huh. for, for the next couple of years. And at the club meeting afterwards, they were showing slides of, of these two women trying to identify it and saying, the club president saying, it is really to their credit that they couldn't identify it, showing how serious they were. And one of the, the women said, you know, it really was fun. That is, she accepted being brought back into the community. It was Irma. It was long. Irma. Yes, Irma. 
and uh, so uh, it's you know these communities, whichever community we are a part of, is I think very important for our social satisfaction. And I think on that note, that I will thank you, close. Gary. This was a great evening. this talk. He goes, well, I haven't talked about that in years. All right, you read the book and have some questions to ask me. And you know what? He knew what he was talking about. <laughs> Thank you very much. Come back to the Ivy Bakery. It'll all come back to you, too. Uh, I, I, well, I, I always pick uh, chanterelles every summer, and, um, and I, I have really enjoyed tonight and enjoyed when I was part of the group and we enjoyed your company. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.